I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Rady. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Pretty great. Awesome. Well, um, I was chatting to someone, you know, the other day, and they were asking how much preparation work we do before we record these podcasts. Mm-hmm. And they were um, pleasantly surprised to learn that we don't do an awful lot. We're not scripted in any meaningful way. I mean, you and I have a couple of minutes chat beforehand, and then we decide on a topic, and then we just basically hit record. So mm-hmm. we're really putting that to the test today, because <laughs> <laughs> we literally said, hey, let's talk about linting. And then we've hit record. So <laughs> let's talk about linting. What's linting, Ben? That is that is the extent of the prep. Um, what is linting? What is linting? Linting is uh, what you do when you don't have a compiler. <laughs> that's, that's one way to think about it. That's an interesting uh, point. Although I would say that I use as much linting in compiled languages as I do in non-compiled yes. languages. So it's equally. But... You yes. know, what, yeah, lint. I mean, so I, I don't even know. I've never really stopped to think about the the etymology. But like, lint is like the entomology, the entom, no, <laughs> <laughs> the insect collectology of. Um, that's gonna be ha- that's gonna have to be a running bit. Uh, well, <laughs> it's yeah. like it's like less and fewer. We just have to constantly confuse entomology. Entomology. And entomology. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> One day we're gonna have to talk about insects and find. I was gonna a way say, to what's the yes. entomology of the word bug in computing? Yes. Right. Uh-huh. Whoa. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. So the, yeah, but lint is like the stuff that you find at the bottom of your pocket after you've mm-hmm. like worn a, a pair of uh, trousers for a while, and you go, "Well, there's yeah, all yeah, this nonsense yeah. and oh, bits of fluff and whatnot." And presumably, yeah. linting the code term comes from like the removal of that. Like, let's get rid of all that fluff. Let's clean it up. Let's get the the, the you know the little brush out. But, yeah. But I guess I honestly don't know what that's from. I don't know where but, yeah. it comes from, but what what I think of it as is essentially static analysis of code mm-hmm. and the, the application of relatively straightforward rules to say, no, this is how the code ought to be, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, mm-hmm. the language probably gives you freedom to do things in lots of different ways. And as mm-hmm. a sort of choice, you say, these ways are the ways that we're doing this thing. You know, we, we, we are, we, whenever we call our log methods, we don't use python f strings and i say this be- and you're going to grin at me because this is my personal bugbear because mm-hmm. that's not that the logger automatically does some of the formatting for you and if you don't uh if you don't use the loggers facility you're paying a cost for something that's going to happen anyway so mm-hmm. and you can say well that's straightforward let's write a rule for it and then i can apply it automatically to my code but there's thousands of other things right so it's a it's a basically code quality checking and then you said something about compilers do you want to elaborate on why compilers or the not the lack of so so if you don't have a compiler and and all of your code is interpreted then there's never an opportunity to do this kind of static checking uh normally naturally but if your code is compiled you you know you could make the argument uh, in any compiled language that a linter is just all the things the compiler team didn't have time to add warnings for well, right. there's that, but there's also a lot of opinionated things that they may or may not want to add as a general per, uh, principle, right? You know, there's there's sure. definitely things that are known to be okay, but may be frowned upon. And it's maybe not the compiler's place to to uh, to, to, to make that decision on behalf of you. And, and, you know, some of this stuff also comes from the fact that you, as a, if you're writing in a compiled language that has stronger 
types, Mm -hmm. then you can make some of the sort of policy decisions about how things may or may not be used by saying, well, I don't accept anything other than this type here. And then the compiler enforces your rules. You get to write the rules Mm -hmm. using the language. But in, say, an interpreted language, we'll pick on Python, um, Mm -hmm. you don't get the opportunity to make those distinctions. You have to sort of say, no, this is... Uh, yeah, I, I need something else to to uphold these these rules that I'm making. But yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're if you don't have the compiler there, then I think the the, the linter has a as a much more not. I'm I'm not really trying to make the argument that if you have a compiled language, you don't need a linter. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but I am saying that if you don't have a compiled language, uh, there there are going to be more instances where you need a linter because there's just no o- other opportunity to do that. Um, and, you know, I feel like that that um, demand changes with various aspects of the team, like how junior the people are, how big the team is, uh, how much consensus there is around um, around sort of like conventions that prevent bugs or enforce a particular style or, you know, just make ensure that a pattern is um, repeated consistently and things like that. Um, you know, it's it's. I think it's actually quite common to have situations where if you got everybody in a room to uh, try to have them agree on how something should be, they would actually agree, um, you know, maybe after a little bit of a discussion, but they would they would agree, but they don't know that they agree. Um, and right. so you sort of like have the linter there as the objective judge be like, no, 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 this is, we pre-agreed that we're agreeing on this. So if the linter's telling you something, then that's what we're doing. And then everyone's like, no, oh, okay, seems reasonable, right? Right. Um, so, you know, there's, there's sort of like, uh, varying degrees to which you might agree. Uh, but I, I think that's, that, that can be a role that, that linters play is, is if you have, you know, larger teams, especially, um, but really any situation where you're trying to create that consensus around like, what should the code be doing? What it should it not be doing? Um, linters are a tool to achieve that. And I suppose the way that you could think about it is that we have tests for the functionality of our code and we make them automated and we have mm-hmm. them like checked in and they're yep. run as part of a CI. Yep. What linting is, is a layer above, a level above that, like meta. This is how we said we're going to write the code. How do we enforce yeah. and test, check? How do we check that we are keeping to the rules that we all agreed on? And yeah, you know, yeah. so I think probably the, the difficult aspect about linting is it's, it's, it is more subjective. There are things that are more subjective and you have to make some... I mean, you yeah. alluded to some... You, know, you get most people in a room and they say, yeah, don't do X. And I'm having trouble mm-hmm. thinking about what X is that what everyone would agree to not well, I, the the non-scalar values in Python default arguments, I think, is a great one, and it is it is actually like one of the ones where it's like I don't actually think it's maybe as clear as like oh the tests are testing for like correctness and behavior and the lints are more stylistic because you can definitely find bugs right. in code with linters like right. It's, we, it's, we should just it explain a little bit. To do this, oh yeah, the, well that the, is because the if one in particular one. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to give um, us a quick? Rundown. Yeah, I think I, I think I can do it off the top of my head. So uh, so basically, when you declare like a function or a method in Python, you can give it default arguments. Um, and so like the arguments value- can have so parameters that you're passing will have default values. So you can say like def uh, say hello uh, username equals Matt, and which means if you yes. call it with no args, it'll say Matt, and if you call it with an arg, it'll say 
what you passed in. So Whatever you get to you default the parameters that you're passing into a function. Got it. Yes, yes. And so the, the problem is, is that Python has no opinions at all about what those values can actually be. They can be anything. Right. Um, and very unintuitively, I think, if you pass in something like a dictionary or a list, um, the, the declaration of that, uh, the, the creation of that object is done once when the function is evaluated, not when it's executed. So every subsequent execution of that function will reuse the same instance of a list or a dictionary right, over and over again. Everything that's not a scalar type like an integer or a float or a string right. is yeah. a reference to a, an object that exists. And so there is yes. exactly one object that is the like empty dictionary you pass as the default. Exactly. And now, of course, exactly. if you mutate that, you're mutating the actual thing that's going to be passed in every single time, I see. Right, right, right. And right, so right. that seems like that's a language flaw. That seems like that's actually a problem with the language. Well, and that's why I kind of make a little bit... I mean, it's very tongue-in-cheek, but I make the argument you know, with, with uh, compilers and stuff that like the lints are just all the things the compiler team didn't around, get around to, to making warnings right. about, um, which is not, it's not really true. It's just no, but it's, it's, it has, it carries it has some, some, flavor. some flavor of it. Yeah. 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 So, um, so yeah, that's I like mean, an, a, a, an example of a lint rule that everyone who gets into a room would would agree with, right? Would mm -hmm. say like, you know, this is all, there is almost no situation yes. in which you want this to be true. And I mean, I suppose the other thing is that with linting rules, you can reasonably decide to turn them off on a per line basis, which is something you normally right. don't do for other yes. things. Like in an actual compiler, it's like there is no way to get past the fact that the compiler mm -hmm. is saying this is broken. Your types are not mm -hmm. compatible. You try to pass them in. And if, but here yeah. you can say like, no, 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 just on this line, don't do it. But it's, a, it's yeah. an opt-in thing to do. And maybe you even turn those off right. maybe if you decide but like if you did really 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 mean to have a mutable default parameter because maybe you're accumulating things into it or whatever you're doing but it's a very purposefully done then you can turn it off but it's not the default anymore and it stops yeah. you from it protects you from yourself um down the line right yeah yeah yeah. So that's a, that's an interesting that's a lint rule that is everyone can get behind but I'm sure there are ones examples of rules that people could reasonably disagree about Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of times I feel like you'll have linters that have stylistic rules like, oh, this this variable name is too short. Right. That's that's a that's a that's a linting rule. Right. Um, and like, you know, OK, like, you know, I, I get I get that people would want to do that. But there's almost certainly you're almost certainly going to run into situations where it's like, no, no, no. In this context, it's fine to have X it's, and it's Y fine because to have X. those are yes. what we call the parameters that get passed into, I don't know, Yeah, the graphic library, library yeah. that's plotting X and Y and like that's actually what they are. And right? you have There's to be not... very careful that you're yeah. not incentivizing yeah. people to start adding like X underscore version underscore one just to make it yeah. long enough, right? Yeah, yeah, right. It's right. a sort of anti-pattern. Uh, yeah. But... but yeah, there's, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, um, I suppose an extension of linting rules and maybe this is, Actually, I don't know if you would agree with this. How do you think about automatic code formatting as essentially a, a lint, or, or rather, you mm -hmm. know, like you know, the 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 checking of a format could be considered to be a lint. It's like, hey, if your code mm -hmm. doesn't look the way that we said our code is going to look, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. it's you're you're breaking the sort of the style guide. Right. And we we value consistency in layout so that we don't spend our our, our time like parsing and and recognizing oh oh no that's just a, a function declaration or whatever but you did it in a different way for me or however it's oh, done yeah absolutely yeah I I my my take on that is that you should use a, a consistent style 
like 100% of the time. It is possible to do that without something to enforce it if you have a small enough and cohesive enough team. And I have been on teams like that where it's just like, yeah, we're just going to do it right. Um, and that's fine. But no matter if it, if it takes automatic formatting and if it takes checking of that automatic forming to make sure that you are doing it, then that's what you should do. It's sort of like, you you know, if, if you were to model this over the evolution of a team, you start off with just like two engineers who are very senior and know each other well. It's just like, we're using that that formatting that we always use, right? Yes, that's what we're doing. Right. Great. And then you work for six months and you add two more people to the team and you start to notice as you open up files that the formatting isn't quite right. And you tell them like, hey guys, you need to make sure that your formatting's up to date. They go, oh yeah, sorry. And then maybe it gets a little better. And then you add two more people to the team and everything goes out the window. You're like, that's it. We're putting in automatic formatting. Right. I can't I can't do this anymore. Right? I think, you know, but then there's a level above that, which I, we're grinning at each other because, you know, I think we agree on this, that... I senior or otherwise experienced, I think is probably a nicer way to put it enough mm-hmm. where I'm like, no day one in comes the automatic formatting. <laughs> it's just, I, I don't want to have to argue about this. I don't even agree often with the way that the code ends yeah, up looking, yeah, but yeah. I've, I value the consistency mm-hmm. and the, the simplicity and, and frankly, things like, um, so I'm talking specifically in like a C plus plus code base. I will use mm-hmm. uh, Clang format, which mm-hmm. is now pretty much across the board accepted by all editors. And it's an external tool that, just yeah. works and it has it's configurable enough it's got many bells and whistles and you can usually find a decent enough compromise and then you check in your format file and you say like that's just how our code's going to look now, mm-hmm. now and you can turn it off in small regions if you really 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 want to like have like a data structure that has you know a, a yeah. sequence of hex numbers or something You're like no these are eight align and whatever but for the vast majority of time you just want to say this is our code style and what i have found is that the consistency is great and it allows me to do refactorings in my code base without having to worry about all those other funny little rules where, you know, if you did a find and replace and you replace a name with a sh- slightly shorter name th- and you have like rules about things either aligning or not aligning or la- uh, oh, fitting yeah. on a line or mm-hmm. not fitting a line, you know, we've all come back to uh, code bases where you can clearly see things oh, yeah. don't where line up anymore because through. somebody yeah. renamed something yeah. and it's like, oh, it's yeah. all shifted. And that just goes away. And that's a kind of a nice right. property, especially yeah. with IDEs that can do refactoring and that also mm-hmm. understand uh, the format file because like, I'll do the refactor and I'll do it in the style as described by mm-hmm. the formatting you've got. So that's very valuable to me. And final thing on that as well is that um, it, it tends to make diffs between... Uh, like long-lived branches less painful as mm-hmm. you will know that like if you have arrived at this if you've like d- separated from a, a, a the baseline the, the the main line and you've been effectively applying small changes that are equivalent you'll run the formatter in both sides and you'll basically agree on everything except for the yeah. parts where you're actually different and that's fine and then you can like merge them back in together and the so so yeah i'm, yeah. A, I'm a big fan of that but i you know i just wasn't sure whether or not you consider this to be uh, a, a linter i mean i'm straight I mean, here i am like testing to see whether or not the thing that i'm talking about matches our very important as, as discussed carefully dis, de, uh, decided topic for today yeah right exactly. <laughs> oh my god am i going off ticket to, uh, off topic or ticket uh no i i and anytime i would say anytime you can get automatic formatting in a consistent way it's just it's less things you have to worry about, right? Fewer, F- fewer. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's you don't you don't have to like spend any brain cycles at all thinking about the formatting. The one place where I think it gets weird though is if you have an IDE that does automatic formatting, 
and the configure and then I think this is becoming less and less true, but you know, there are still I think there are still situations where this might be true where the the formatting operation cannot be externalized, right? So basically in order to enforce the format, you have to have the IDE running, like you know, yeah. you can't enforce it in a build or yeah, you can't a... use a different editor and have a command line tool that does it. Like whatever you choose um to do your formatting and to check your formatting uh, needs to have a like character for character equivalent that can be run automatically. That can be run from the command line. Can be run in different tools on the CI system to make yes. sure that you have a conform. All of these exactly. things, I wholeheartedly yeah. agree. Yeah. I think that's one of the big, big deals. You know, I think when um, you know a lot of the the the, the idea, yeah, the JetBrains IDEs have always had their own idea about formatting, and for the longest time, I just used their defaults. But you know, they are moving now more and more to where they're like, well, here's the .config file that tells me yeah. how to format, and I'll use that instead. You know, that's great, yeah. brilliant. Don't use your yeah. own formatter. Use one that my friends who are using VI or mm. you know Edlin or whatever they're using. Mm-hmm. The, right. the, the, the not, yeah, it's about it's just like tooling. You have to have intersubjective tooling. You have to have tooling that everyone. And everything, like every part of your process, can use to produce the same result, right? Um, you know, they can follow the same steps and produce the same result. Because um, if you don't, it's just it's just going to create a whole bunch of headache that you don't need. Right. I think um, what you've you've kind of implied in that also is that those you, you, one way to achieve intersubjectivity is to just mandate these are the exact tools everyone must use, right? Yeah, so I could just say, hey, everyone uses you know this tool, this right. editor. Yes. But, you know, that... we're all using PyCharm. We're all using CLion. We're all using IntelliJ IDEA, right? Yeah, like, or that's you know, one Visual way Studio Code or VI with yeah. these. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. one way of doing it. But right. I think you and I have realized that that's a great recipe to make unhappy developers. There's like <laughs> one thing, the one thing you can do to a developer to make them feel up, uh, you know, not effective in their own you know, not not able to make the changes at the speed they, right. they would otherwise be able to do is to make them use an editor they're not familiar yeah. with. It's like wearing someone else's clothes. No one likes, <laughs> no one likes doing that. I mean, it's a it's a funny thing, I and mean, this is sort of slightly different. I know, but like you know, I always used to think it was funny that people would buy expensive keyboards to to work on. Mm-hmm. Until I bought one myself and went, oh my gosh, my life is a ton better now. Mm-hmm. I don't have mm-hmm. pains in my hands. I got like all those good things. And I feel like I'm more effective in my job. And then it occurred to me, it's like that's 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 the primary way I communicate to do my job is mm-hmm. through typing. Yep. And so it sh- I should spend if I'm going to spend any m- money on anything, I should spend it on a decent keyboard, a decent mouse, mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. a decent editor that I'm happy with, so that I can do my craft. Mm-hmm. as effectively as I can in the way that I am happy with. And I yeah. kind of got over that hump now that that's not like, oh, I should just be able to pick up any old thing and get yeah. on with it. You know, like it's like you don't see um, musicians wandering around just picking up any old, you know, cello and kind of going, oh, this will do, I suppose. I mean, I'm sure they can. You know, a good musician yeah. will be able to make good music right. out of anything, but you wouldn't expect them to. As I'm, And I'm not saying that that's right. what I was thinking, but it, it was an, ep- an epiphany moment I have. And it's certainly how I'm justifying, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of keyboards to uh, to myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no and i mean you know uh you will definitely have a hard time hiring if you're like we use this ide and this tool chain very good point and you know only macbooks and <laughs> all the other constraints that you put on there it's like you better be putting them on there for a good reason because right. you're eliminating a whole pool of potentially really good engineers uh that will not work at your company because they can't use vi or whatever right 
Yeah. yeah. No, that's an yeah. interesting thing. I mean, so anyway, going back to it, this is obviously us saying that uh, any kind of linting tools or formatting tools need to be mm-hmm. intersubjective. And, you know, the, the obvious way to say that they, they need to be able to run headless on a CI server, if nothing yeah. else, right? If yeah. only that yeah. alone, that's a good yeah. reason like not to have. minimum level, right? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And yeah, talking about Lint, you know, you obviously you mentioned about compiled languages, and there mm-hmm. are definitely um, a, a million r- rules that you, uh, sorry, a, mini, a million warnings that you can turn on in your C++ compiler, some of which are a little bit a, a bridge too far because they are very, very opinionated about certain things. But um, there are definitely um, linters that are useful to have run on your code as well. There is Clang Tidy, mm-hmm. which I always forget, confused between Clang Format and Clang Tidy because they both sound like they would basically do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But there are a number of things that that can do, static analysis that that can do. There are a number of commercial products as well. Um, and the thing about these is this is where it becomes more subjective very much. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can definitely say, like, there's, it's not the compiler's job to tell you that you shouldn't have a naked new. This is like an unmanaged new that's not being held by a smart pointer. So you're like you're basically promising that, that I'm going to write the code to clean up this object afterwards. I promise, and yeah. that's a completely reasonable thing. It's allowed, been allowed since the the big dawn of the language. Very very occasionally, it's what you want to do nowadays. It definitely should not be the compiler's position to tell you that you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Is my opinion. But I think a linter could reasonably say. Under no circumstances should you use a naked new anymore. You should always use one of the managed things, a, sh- a smart point, you know, a share pointer, unique pointer. In fact, always a unique pointer, never a share pointer, but that's that's a whole other talk. Um, <laughs> and, you know, then you can maybe elect to turn it off, but it's not really, I don't believe morally that that's a compiler's job. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a style thing. And this is certainly what uh, the, the Clang Tidy way has moved. You know, there's a, not, a lot of uh, companies have published their own guidelines. There's Google guidelines, and then there's the LLVM's own projects guidelines. And these are in, enshrined in rules that are inside of, of Clang, uh, Clang Tidy. So there, a lot of those do say, yeah, you can't, you can't name this thing this way, you know, or you can't, have, you can't use this idiom of the language. It's just not, you know, don't, don't do it. It's, it's widely accepted to have been a mistake and uh, we can't take it out of the, the yeah, language yeah, because yeah. of the way C++ is. Yes, but, but please don't. Probably you didn't mean to do this. And obviously yeah. you can turn it off. So I, I just wanted to make a bit of a stronger case for the fact that I think linting and static code analysis, you know, these are, these are great safety nets to have around. Let's just assume the programmer is mm-hmm. a hostile witness. Yeah, make yeah. sure that we have tests for any changes they might make. Make right. sure that we have styles, uh, guidelines yeah. that are enforced and make sure that every kind of thing that we can analyze can be thrown at them. And then I think it gives you a lot more confidence to make changes, which is yeah. a nice thing, a nice property. Uh, there, is, there is a trade-off there, by the way, with um, like, you know, basically build times or just deployment times you know interesting uh, point where you know all these static checks take time sometimes they're pretty fast but sometimes they can take a long time uh and you do have to kind of make a little bit of a trade-off between cycle time and the sort of safety or correctness or formatting or other checks that you get putting those things in place i mean i think the ideal world is that you have uh and you know we've been messing around with this a little bit recently but you have a pre-commit hook that just does all of these things for you, so it's impossible to check in code. I think one of the I'm gonna I gotta get on my soapbox for just a minute. All right, all right. I I'm, think hang on, I'm just getting software, comfortable. Go. Yep. Get yeah. You know, get get a cup of tea. Lay back. Oh. Um, so I think that the software development world lost something when we started building 
CI tools. Because oh. in the very, very early days of CI, the way it worked was there was a machine that was the CI machine. And you either you know copied your code over there or you walked over there with a floppy disk. Like Whoa, you took, very early you took days your code here. over to the machine and you integrated your code on that machine. And then when it was all integrated and the tests were all passing, then you you would leave it. And when people wanted to update, they would go to the machine and they would get the, the latest version of the code and they would pull it back. Now, obviously, that's a, you know, that's a really slow process. I'm not actually suggesting that anyone does that. But one of the benefits of that was that it was basically impossible to share code with other people that wasn't correct. What we have now with basically every single CI system that I've ever seen is you share the code and then the checks run, right? Now, it could be that you're sharing it on a branch, right? Which right. makes it a little better, but the model is still the same, right? And you still have that moment when you take the branch and you merge it into master and then you find right. out whether it's or not that, it's correct. I think what you're sort of alluding to really is that sort of intersubjectivity. It's like if... if uh, if you can, if you can't develop into uh, confidence that your code works intersubjectively without first checking it in and saying, mm -hmm. "Hey, the first person who's going to find out is the CI machine." Oh, and anyone else who types git pull at the same time, exactly. <laughs> right? Yep. Then yep. you've got a problem, right? Yeah. Right. That's yep. interesting. And I fully grant that the way that this problem was being solved before was with a really horrible lock that people would hold for hours, right? So while it's like they actually you integrate, could, yeah. while they integrated, so it's it's not like it was better. But there was this dimension of it that was lost where it was like, you know, I, I, in an ideal world, what I would want to do is not have any CI at all. What I want is a completely hermetically sealed, infinitely fast pre-commit hook. Not much that you could That you could run. Yes, I know. Right. I'm not asking for much here. That, that you could run uh, on any developer machine and it would be completely intersubjective, would not depend on the environment at all. And it would give you extraordinarily high confidence that the code met all the, you know, the testing and the linting and all the other things such that it was impossible to commit code that was incorrect. Yeah. And then you just push. And then there is no CI because you have high confidence that the, the commits themselves proven, can't be wrong. Yeah. Right? You've proven a, a different yes. level and, you know, it's a distributed proof as well, which means yes. that, you know, computational stuff, you know, you haven't got the single <laughs> bottleneck and all that kind of stuff. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can kind of do this with server-side pre-commit hooks, but GitHub you get all in particular. Of like five seconds to, to, to do it. Yeah, right? GitHub, GitHub has a timeout on them. If you run your own Git server, you of course can do this. Yeah, uh, and I have done that actually. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, there was there was a small project where I actually like the I, I it was kind of like a little bit of an experiment, but basically like the production deployment server and my Git repository were all the same thing, and I backed them up accordingly. Um, and so you would push to the server, it would run the build in a pre-commit hook that took as long as it took, it didn't really matter, and then just deployed right onto that machine, restarted the services and did all that. Uh, and like, that was my only repository. So it was sort of like the, the Heroku style Git mm -hmm. deployment, except the, the production server was also the Git repo. <laughs> um, and you in know, I would, interesting. and I would take frequent backups and snapshots of that. And that was it. That was all I had. Um, you know, again, I'm not recommending that as no, a really good idea for, uh, for, yeah. for, for doing. Yeah, no, I get it. It gave it gave me this property, which was like, you know, you can't share code that isn't both correct and in production. 
right right, right. So that's sort an of interesting the, one i yeah. guess you know you, you alluded to this earlier about the branch but you know enabling yeah. um requirements of uh, pr in say something like github mm-hmm. um that gives you some of that ability. You are still using the fact that you're pushing it to some other place as a sort of uh, intersubjective test. Then, you know, you get it reviewed. And then if you don't allow merges without the passing mm-hmm. of a CI, then you've kind of reclaimed that. But, you know, I think probably what you're alluding to is something that we've seen at work a bit, which is that if your tests take too long or are too hard to run locally, yeah. it can be quite easy to start using a pull request as a crutch for uh, maybe just run. Can someone else run my tests yeah, for me? Yeah, you know, right. and that's not necessarily a bad thing if you've got other things to be getting on with. If you like, okay, my tests take fifteen minutes because there are a whole bunch of really complicated integration tests, and I want to move on to the next thing. So mm. I'm going to push it to a branch, and then I'm going to move myself to a different branch and go. And then my machine is not bogged down running these complicated things. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, it's, it's sort of obviously it would be much nicer if you had your infinitely fast pre-commit hook to do, run all of these integration tests and you wouldn't have to think about that kind of thing. Yeah. You wouldn't have to yeah. context switch so much. Yeah, I definitely, I, I, I definitely, this is maybe just a thing for me, but I definitely have this sort of like idealistic mode that I have experienced in like brief moments and I never let go of it. And I'm always kind of like, all of the tools and all of the techniques that I that I wind up seeing, I'm always sort of comparing to this sort of platonic ideal of, you know, infinitely fast feedback loops and all of these other things. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I kind of get why we need to do this, but let's never lose sight of the fact that it's not what we really want. What we right? really want. That's a yeah, 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 yeah. Gosh. Um, one day I'll get you working on some C++ with me and then you'll suffer for the... <laughs> the I've, I've I done a little bit of that. You but have. I know, oh, I, you I, have. Yeah, yeah you I know, have. It's a different I mean, world. That's, that's definitely a world where I'm just like, man, this is, we got, there's a pretty big there's gap. got to be a better way of doing this, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, our original goal and topic was linters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, we covered a little bit of C++ and some Python. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever had an experience of other languages, um, JavaScript or... Uh, I've used some JavaScript linters. I've used some Java linters. Um, I definitely, you know, it's the same sort of philosophy, but I am definitely in the camp of always turn on all the compiler warnings and then just Mm -hmm. do whatever they say. Um, One of the things that I wanted to ask you is whether or not you had ever run across any domain-specific linters. Oh, um, so Clang Tidy essentially has some of that built in. Um, You know, like, you know, uh, so you could consider like Google Style Guide as being okay. a domain specific and and the LLVM code base mm-hmm. star guide is domain specific now i know also there are things like misra uh, misra c uh, which are standards for the automotive industry that say you just can't do these things in the oh, language okay, right yeah. you just this is not mm-hmm. allowed you can't ever do this this is not you, you know those kinds of levels of things mm-hmm. and i believe that there are rule sets for those and if not there i believe there are commercial tools that will basically run over your code and tell you yeah you you did something that is just disallowed by misery you you downcast a, a 32-bit value into a 16-bit value without checking to see if it was truncated you know those are the right. kinds of things that you might want to say reasonably is not a good idea yeah yeah um there are also i mean an interesting sort of corollary to that is um there are now um something called the guideline support 
sorry, the, the C++ guidelines, which are sort of a semi-norm, no, non, it's non-normative, it's not part of the standard, but some of the people that are heavily involved in the standard are behind it, some of the, the sort of big names of C++, and they've kind of sounded like, these, these are definitely rules that we think you should follow, right? And you mm-hmm. basically do this by default, you have to have a reason to not do things this way. There are clang tidy rules for those as well, right? To say mm-hmm. like, please turn on all the GSLs that you can find, sorry, GSLs, the name of the guideline support library, and they're, so they've published a library that says, you know, this is a way of casting a number from 32 bits to 16 bits. And we will throw an exception if it does fall outside of the bounds of what can be represented in a 16-bit number. And the linter is in cahoots with the library and will say, mm-hmm. OK, mm-hmm. if you are doing this through that function, that's fine because I know that it's covered. But otherwise, mm-hmm. I'll say, no, no, you can't just assign this value here. And, of course, C++ has always been very lackadaisical or very mm-hmm. uh, relaxed about you passing, you know, 12 into a function that wants a char. And you're like, well, okay, I can see that 12 is not going to overflow a char. But in general, 12 is an integer, and an integer is probably bigger than 8 bits. And so the char could overflow, and maybe I should be checking that. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, the thing about C++ is that you want performance as well. So sometimes you want to be able to say, no, I'm doing this on purpose, and I'm promising Scout's Honor that this won't happen at runtime. Mm-hmm. And so you have to mm-hmm. use a different version, which again tells the linter, look, I'm doing this on purpose. It kind of bakes in the linter rule that says, no, this is fine. Mm-hmm. And so that's an interesting thing, right? You're using a language to almost build a DSL hmm. of like, these are things that I'm, I'm telling you on purpose that language has always been fine with. Um, and, and it sort of almost builds on something. Now I'm going to go I'll go off on one here, but you know, builds on something that when C++ was, came around, um, you know, you remember C casts, you know, where you just put something in parens and say, like, this is an int. You do paren int mm-hmm. x. And it's like, hey, there you go. Yeah. It's now, now it's an integer. And the problem with that is that you can cast pretty much any single thing to any other single thing. And the same mm-hmm. operation was used to say, no, this is an integer and I want to pass it as a floating point value on purpose. Or um, this is a pointer to void which is just like a random address, and I'm going to cast it to some really complicated structure with behavior, like an actual object instance type. You're like, wait a second, those are very two very different operations. One is just reinterpret the data, sorry, not reinterpret, actually do a a conversion. I know that that Mm -hmm. instruction is going to run that's going to turn an int into a float. Another one is like, just tell the compiler internally, by the way, um, just treat this memory address as if it's yeah, containing yeah. a completely different type of object. And right. when C++ came in and with the sort of like complicated virtual hierarchies of objects, as you were casting backwards and forwards between, say, um, objects that were in a, 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 an ob- a hierarchy, uh, an is a hierarchy, then potentially there were some fix-ups that were needed to be done. Like, oh, you know, like, hey, this is, I mean, don't use multiple inheritance, but if you did use multiple inheritance and you were casting up and down to the two different base classes, potentially Mm -hmm. things needed to be fixed up. And so that same parens cast is now going, oh, it's not actually a... Uh, a, 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 a bob, it's an Ian, and now I need mm-hmm. to add 16 to like the address of it. So there's an add hidden in there as well. Yeah. The problem with the C style cast is that it would it would use whatever information it had at the time to do the best effort of what, what it thought it was. So if it didn't know that Bob and Ian were actually related in any way because it hadn't, it only seen the declaration of Bob mm-hmm. and the declaration of Ian, it would just go, fine, they're the same thing, fine, mm-hmm. you told me this. But if they were actually, if it had seen the class definitions that says, oh, they both inherit from two different, you know, somewhere up on the uh, 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 further up in the hierarchy, then it would do some work. So, so this is a very long side. No, bar. this is this is good. This um, is good. So when um, when C plus plus came along uh, later on in the sort of like the C plus uh, plus, I just say when this was an 
Actually, I will make no, no no bones about when this came on. But very early on in my experience of C++, there were these new style casts, static underscore cast, mm-hmm. dynamic underscore cast, reinterpret mm-hmm. underscore cast, and const underscore cast. They have different powers. And so if you did a static cast, you're saying, I know these are related types. You can do a conversion from one to the other using mm-hmm. knowledge. Like uh, that will allow me to go from an int to a float, a float to an int. It will allow me to go from Ian to Bob. If the compiler knows that they have got an inherited base class, mm-hmm. it would be an error if it didn't. It would say like, I don't know that these mm-hmm. are related. And so therefore it would stop. Yeah. And, and so um, those kind of things, they look like function calls, static underscore cast, template mm-hmm. parameters, the thing. And so the, all the way back to the beginning now, the GSL things that are like, hey, narrow cast or mm-hmm. narrow, look like the built-in types in the language. They're just a, a function call that does this mm-hmm. for him. So there's kind of a precedent for it, I suppose, is where I'm going with this. Interesting. So we need to build, what you're saying is we need to build a, a, a custom linter that can check for these kinds of relationships between Bob and Ian, and we uh, should call it Cahoots. Because then, <laughs> then it'd be like, oh, you can't cast that. It's like, no, fine, but Bob and Ian are in Cahoots. Right. That's like, I mean, well, that's... <laughs> That is kind of what the static cast is doing, rather unfortunately. But yeah, it's a, it's a funny old world. Yeah, in cahoots. It's oh right man, there. I think cahoots. Uh, cahoots dot config. It's right. It's minus seven. <laughs> They're right there. Well, I guess that's uh, linters thoroughly talked about and yeah. uh, code formatting and, and code formatting. Random C plus plus. Yes, and rants about how casting. CI used to be back in the. 19th century in the i was gonna say yeah that my my earliest experience with ci was uh a ci server i wrote myself in python early very early versions of python and i i actually came across the code the other day it was hilarious to look yeah. through it and have a laugh but one thing i'd forgotten that i was reminded by that is that i had bought one of these um, con- um an outlet that i could control programmatically through the serial port on the ci machine and i had had a, a green lava lamp that was oh, on when the bill yeah. was green. Uh-huh. And then yes. I had a red spinning, like actual disco, uh-huh. like a police thing for when it went red, um, which was a great idea. I had a great fun, you know, getting, we're learning how to get the protocol to work over the serial cable to get yeah, to talk to yeah, this funny yeah. device and uh-huh. putting it in there. And as you might have guessed, the red spinning light lasted about three minutes before uh-huh. it was unplugged and removed. <laughs> yep. oh, that's right. <laughs> like, I think I even have, do I have, oh, I have. Oh, he's gonna, all right, okay, all right, I have to make, I'm amusing myself here as Ben, uh, unseen, is rushed off into the background to his uh, shelving and has come back this with, is drum roll. exactly what this is. Oh my gosh, we That's, are the same person, Ben. Here's, here's the cable, uh, the a, USB, USB B, B cable. Through here's the power supply. Here's the flashing light there. little on-off little switch. switch. That's amazing. It does exactly <laughs> the same thing. We are... This is his two's compliment, man. That's what like, it's we all just about. Branched back. We we have, branched yeah. apart. Came right back. Together. We're in cahoots. We're in cahoots. <laughs> all right, my friend. Well, we better stop there because I don't think we can top that. Yeah. So I'll see you next good. time, my friend. Yep. See you later. You've been listening to Two's Compliment, a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Godbolt. Find the show transcript and notes at twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Twitter at 2CP, that's at T-W-O-S-C-P. Theme music by Inverse Phase, inversephase.com.